0: Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez. The podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Jeff McDonald. Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Henry. Great to be
0: here. Glad to have you. Uh, Jeff is a former architect uh, who no longer designs buildings. Instead, he designs ideas in the form of books, presentations, and information products. He created the Project Passion Program out of his own failure to fulfill his projects and goals. Uh, like Thomas Edison, he spent a lot of years finding out lots of ways not to complete your projects, and now he thinks he's on to something. Uh, Jeff is the author of seven books, including one that I read recently, uh, "Done: Why You Fail to Finish Your Projects and What to Do About It. We're going to chat about a lot of the takeaways from that book today. Uh, He has also spoken at international design conferences, exhibited his paintings and sculptures, and is a master coach. He is best known as the creator of Book Wrapper, where he uh, recreates important business books so you can read the big ideas from the best thinkers on the planet in under 30 minutes. And I love that concept. I've done something similar as I've read business books by summarizing them, but this is whole nother thing it, it really is uh, a great way to read a book quickly and get the gist of it and learn from it quickly as opposed to having to read the entire book which you should do as well if it, if it interests you but nonetheless Jeff uh, Jeff lives in Melbourne Australia so he joins us today all the way from Melbourne which we appreciate greatly in today's episode we're going to talk about his journey briefly his travels to not literally uh, not just literally but figuratively to where he is today as a business owner. And we're going to dive into this concept that he has a lot of knowledge on, on getting projects done so that we can grow our small businesses. So once again, Jeff McDonald, welcome to the show. Thanks, Henry. All right, let's get started uh, understanding a bit about your journey, if we could. Um Got a couple of as I was doing the research. One that was interesting, I'm not sure where I got it, but uh, you said I was, quote, I was part of the last year of Deakin, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, Deakin University? Yep. Deakin University architecture students to study for five full years and not touch a computer. That's amazing, huh?
1: Yeah, it sort of shows my age, but we're right on that tipping point where <laughs> yeah. we did all our study of on drawing boards and we drew, we hand drew everything and- And then the absolute last year that I was there, they actually got computers in. Amazing. But there was no one who knew how to use them. And we didn't have a a lecturer or a a professor to actually teach us anything. So they got used to play um, flight simulator and submarines and games and stuff. And no one did anything on them relative to their architecture. Amazing!
0: And then one of the things that you went on to do, if I got it right, is is do website design. So that you almost like... Deciding, by golly, I'm going to learn this computer stuff and be expert at it. What drove you to website design? And I, of course, I got I can see where it's related to engineering and architecture and all of that.
1: Well, it was kind of funny because straight after I studied at Deakin, I realized I really needed to learn the computers because that was going to be the future. So that's where I went to. Um, I finished up at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Mm. Um, and I started And the whole point there was to actually study some computer stuff. Um, After that, I worked in London for a little while as an architect. And I really got to the point where I really didn't feel like I fitted into architecture because it's such a detail-oriented thing, whereas I was into the big picture. Mm -hmm. And I started studying the computers from the point of view of where the technology was taking us, where the industry was going, and... Because the whole industry was still at that point where they were barely touching computers themselves, it was like, I don't want to spend my next five years sitting on a drawing board doing stuff that's already effectively obsolete. So that's where I quit architecture and I I got lost for a few years there. I studied art and was unemployed for a while and didn't take jobs and eventually I took part-time jobs and finished up and this is the irony, I, I didn't want to sit on a computer. But here I was, I created a web design business because that was where things were actually heading to. Um, yes. And that was fun for a few years, but it got too technical for me. So I was interested in the technology, but not really the techo person. So I could build a basic site, but it started to get very complex for me. And I probably should have just built a team around yeah. it. Um, but in those days, I don't think I had my head around that. I was just sort of following my nose. So I think of myself as probably an accidental entrepreneur from the point of view that I really after spending so long at university I just didn't feel like I wanted a job why would you want a job would you have to turn up and you had to <laughs> sit in the same desk all day and you had to do one job whereas when I started looking for jobs I actually wanted I wanted to do that job and then I wanted to do that job and then I wanted to do that job and I really wanted five jobs at once and the idea of just doing one never appealed to me so that's where I think I chose to go down the entrepreneurial journey without even knowing that I was doing that, it was more a case of I just can't find the job I want, so I'll just do this for somebody. Oh, and then I'll do this for somebody, and that's why my career looks like a bit of a dog's breakfast (laughs) where it's website design and coaching and training programs and board games and all these things that happened along the way.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So you obviously were not cut out for the typical work environment and working one place for a long time. Architecture wasn't as it turned out for you. What led you to study architecture to begin with? Was it an expectation? Was it your parents' guidance? What what led you to go that route in university? Well,
1: you'll probably laugh at this too. Talk about someone who doesn't actually plan their life. But it was a bit of an accident as well. Um, Originally, I was going to be an accountant because I figured I'm going to be rich, so I might as well be an accountant Mm -hmm. so I can add up how much money I'm going to be. There's a career plan for you. Um, And then. As I got through that, I realized that I could never balance my balance sheets. I'd always get about 95% on my exams, which is pretty good. Right. But I was always chasing those ledgers around the, the balance sheet and couldn't quite get them to work. And I thought, oh, no, that's going to be a frustrating career. And I literally went into the careers guy and said to him, um, well, I don't want to do an accounting anymore. What do you got for me? And he pointed me, said, you like graphics, don't you? And it's like, oh, why don't you consider architecture or drafting? And when you think about it, that's a bit of a tenuous connection that just because I like to do graphics, I should do architecture. <laughs> but that's how I finished up in architecture. And I, and I absolutely loved architecture. It was just that the studies, when you study buildings and that, you actually get to design everything. Whereas when you go into architectural practice, mm at least for the first couple of years, all you get to do is the toilet details right. and a few really minor things. And it was just like, this is such a disconnect from what we were studying.
0: Yeah, I can see that it's so painful. Then after you get to the reality of working in the field and, and starting to start a practice. So I'm of course curious, how did you end up in Nebraska?
1: I actually applied for a student exchange program and I applied rather late. It was, this is the time around when crocodile Dundee was popular and There was more people from the US and partly population-wise coming to Australia, and they couldn't get enough Australians to come to America. So they should have actually deleted my application or told me to wait again till next year. And they accepted me and they said, basically, you could have um, Kansas State or you could have Nebraska. Wow. And before I could reply, um they said sorry, Kansas State is closed. It's Nebraska or wait for 12 months. And it's like, okay, let's go. So, <laughs> it was a bit of a it's sounding a bit odd here there's three sort of lucky things that just happened, but I think it was a good move because it really expanded. I think it was the the point where you go from small town Geelong, which is an hour from Melbourne, which is about it's now got a, it had about a 100,000 people then. So, it was a modest sort of city, not big though going to Nebraska, which was actually the the same size, but it really opened up my world to just see meeting university students from around the world that were all studying there, hanging out with all the locals, getting into the football and all that sort of stuff. It was just a real eye-opener for me. Yeah. So it was an education in all sorts of ways.
0: Well, I'm sure. I'm sure quite the experience. All right, so along your path, you did some designing of board games. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, that was another one of those things where I – I think, again, at the bottom, at the heart of things, I'm a creative and I just create stuff. And I was running some training programs, so I just created some board games as something we could play in the training programs. And people said, where'd you get these from? And I'm like, well, I just made them up. And they sort of looked at me really dumbfounded as, what do you mean you made up board games? Mm. And then word got out that I made some board games up and other people said, oh, I want one of them for mine. So I had a few clients for that. And the really interesting thing, When I started designing the board games was when I realized the real reason why I quit architecture. And it sort of flows into this conversation around the projects piece. Um, There's a learning model called the format model, and it was by Bernice McCarthy, and it was designed for school teachers. And the idea was that different people in the classroom had different learning styles, and she identified four. Some people want to know why this is important. So you need to address that. Some people want to know just generally what's the concept or the solution here. So you need to address that. Some people want to know how you actually do things. What are the process? What's the steps? And some people want to know what this is connected else to. And you need to work through all four of those to make sure everybody in your audience was covered. And what I realized when I found that and was doing the board games, that the board games are very much a how process. It's about, if you're playing Monopoly, say, it's how do I get from... Um, zero to buying, buying Mayfair and winning the game. So you're looking at strategy in how you play and design board games. But the whole architecture piece is all about the what because the builder does the how and the architect only does the what in terms of they say this building looks like this and it looks like this shape and here's where the windows go and here's where the doors are. But they're not allowed to tell the builder, there's an unwritten rule there, you don't tell the builder how to build it. And I was much more interested in the how of things than I was for the what. And that made sense to me as why architecture didn't quite fit and why they went down certain paths where I kept butting heads because I wanted to go do it a different way. So that was kind of a big learning for the board games. And over time, whilst I produced a handful of them, they just became really big exercises. They were quite complex things to design because I was trying to design them from the point of view of replicating an idea in someone's business. And it just became a bit hard. Um, So that worked for about 12 months. And after that, I I went on to the next thing.
0: (laughs) Very interesting. And so you touched on it, obviously. So you said it has something to do with the learning model, but you talk about it in the book as well, as it relates to getting projects done. So help me with that connection. What What is it about board games that can help us with getting projects done? Or what is that connection there that you talk about in the book?
1: Well, there's probably two parts. The first one is in the last couple of years, there's been a really big push around uh, how corporates are trying to design work. And you might have heard of the term gamification. Right, right. So people were realising that young people, including myself, sometimes would actually play board or not board games, electronic games, and they'd play them for hours, and they'd be so engaged you could almost never get a conversation out of them. So they started to look at the principles of what engages people around uh um, electronic games and how we could apply that to workplace so they're looking at um small tasks giving people immediate rewards and satisfactions giving them goals that sort of stuff so that's gamification which part i'm about to introduce in the next program i want run as a, a way to design your project that's probably a more advanced strategy the other side of it is when we go back to that format model of why what how and what else that if we look at the way most projects are designed, they're only pro- designed around the what. So we design our projects to say, hey, here's where I am. This is the goal I want to do. And here's a couple of things I need to do to get there. We don't talk about the why. And we don't really talk about how we're going to do it in, in a holistic sense. And in my book, I talk about um, the difference between planning and design. And generally, we plan things, but the plan thing's very much about the doing. I need to do this to get that. And if you're task focused, so if you like to-do lists and you like inbox zero where you get all your your inbox clear each day, um, then that task focus works for you. And if that's what you're good at naturally or have a preference for, then you're probably very good at getting tasks done and getting projects done. I found I was really hopeless at that. Um, My inbox is never at zero. Um, No matter how I try it, it just does my head in trying to get it to zero every day. So I've basically given up on that. And I realized that I was not getting my projects done because most of the project and productivity stuff out there is all task focused. And whilst I needed to get better at it, I was never really going to succeed simply by doing that. So that's when I started to look at coming up with some other strategies for getting things done. Okay, I see. All
0: right, so then uh, chronologically here, was the book wrapper, the first of the current businesses that you started?
1: Yeah, book wrapper about 10 years ago. um, Again, it was a, a good case of spotting an opportunity from something I was already doing. I was already reading books. I was already taking fairly extensive notes from the key books that I was reading. And then it was suggested that I needed um, a small, low-hanging piece of fruit for my business. So what's an entry-level product that I could create that doesn't take up too much time? Mm. And when I started doing the book wrapper, so the other piece was I used to love drawing visuals and diagrams and things. So it wasn't just words. It wasn't just about taking the words and making less words out of the documents like the Reader's Digest condensed version. So, I had to have pictures and diagrams and models and things in there as well to explain what was doing. And when I showed people the first couple of examples, they were like, wow, where did this come from? And I was like, well, that's just the way I think it needs to be done. I hadn't really thought about it. And I think that was the creative in me just exploring my way of doing it. And then that started to get some traction. And that worked pretty well for a while. I think it was kind of funny because when I first did it, no one would pay for an ebook. And that might sound strange now because then there was a phase where people would pay for ebooks, and that's where Bookwrapper did well. And then, probably in the last five years, we've sort of gone into that phase of people aren't paying for ebooks again. So, it had a few evolutions and variations to grow mm-hmm. it into a business. And it, it gave me some good branding and positioning. And it never quite got to the point where it filled my whole income just from one, that, that one stream. Okay. And that's sort of where the ideas architect came from was that it was like I literally was saying to people, I used to be an architect, but I'm not designing buildings anymore. I'm designing ideas. And that's when I would talk about Book Wrapper in that way, that Book Wrapper was an example of designing an idea. And that's when people would say, oh, can you design something for me? And that's where the board games took off um, and other projects to help people write books, come up with presentations, that sort of thing. So that's where Ideas Architect came from. Okay, And that's still probably my, less so now because I don't promote it anymore, Um, but that was my core income for a number of years where people would pay me to actually help them develop their intellectual property. So for speakers or presenters or consultants. Okay. And
0: so what is the primary business today?
1: Um, It's mainly focusing on project passion. Um, which, again, came out of a major breakdown I had a few years ago. I had partnered with a um, someone who, at that time, I considered a friend. And um, unfortunately, he did the wrong thing and lied to me about the success of our business, and I pretty much almost went broke. Um, and in, once I got past blaming him, I, I sat down and looked at why I was in that situation, and I realized that... Had I finished all my projects over the last 20 years, I wouldn't have been in that situation. I would have had a whole bunch of products out there. I'd have some income. I'd have a strong reputation to get some new clients around that, whereas I was just in that big hole that I hadn't finished things and I realized the cost of not finishing things. And so looking for a next project to take on, I realized I actually need to get better at this. Um, I did a strengths profile and um, all of my – top five strengths came up in the area of strategic thinking and I had none of my top five strengths in relationship building, um, persuasion and influence and execution and I thought okay um, I don't have to become the world's best but I can get better at this Mm -hmm. so that's where Project Passion was created out of that so that's a combination of it's a group coaching program online where I run people through a process and coach them through getting their projects done
0: and that's of course uh, in part what led to to the book and so if i understood it correctly back then when that situation that ended badly you had a lot of unfinished projects that i guess let, left you exposed to something going bad with the partnership i'm curious i'm always curious about people and working in partnerships have you since partnered again? Do you now avoid partnerships? What are your thoughts in general about working in partnership?
1: <laughs> um, I'm still keen, and I've got two partnerships on the go at the moment, which are not the full business. They're just part of what I'm doing now, um, which makes it a lot easier to manage. So it's probably tempered my enthusiasm. But in the same way, I think it's, I, I don't naturally go to partnerships, but I think that they're an important part of um the age we live in that I think we can't no one person can do everything now. And I'm really I'm realizing, I guess, from my strengths profile that I'm good at I'm really good at certain things. I've really got a strong focus around strategic thinking and the planning and the ideas piece. But I'm not so good at some of these other areas and that's where I needed to partner to actually move my projects forward. So I'm not naturally a, a community builder. So therefore working with someone who's a good at Um, networking and linking up with people and building a community, that can actually really be a good gift for me, but it can also be a gift for them because I can come up with content and ideas and programs for them that suits my strengths. Yeah,
0: very interesting. All right, we'll start diving into the, the getting projects done topic. And of course, the book is all about that. I think a good place to start Jeff might be in this distinction that you make between planning and design. And if you could explain that and and then we'll chat about that.
1: Yeah, I touched on this earlier and around the the format model that most of the planning focuses only on the what. And it's also, even when we do the how it's very task focused. And that's one of the big distinctions I, I learned fairly early on that if it's task focused, and you're task-oriented, that's probably enough for you. And it's no accident, you know, 90% of your project management material, getting things done, all of that stuff's written from the task focus. But if you're not task-focused, I'm not very task-focused, so therefore I needed to find another way. And the key idea that underpins project passion is that our projects fall over from a lack of motivation. And if you think about that in that format model, the motivation's in that why area. So you've probably heard Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, which is certainly a good one to read. And I started to realise, well, we actually need to add something into our projects about the frame. And we also, what I realised from not so much my architectural planning, but it fitted, was that the environment we are in actually has a bigger influence than than us. So if you think about it, if you were... um, on your own in a desert island, you're probably not gonna be motivated to do a lot of stuff. Whereas if you were sitting in a room and everybody, like let's say a library, and everybody around you is already working, got their head down and it's quiet and they're working, you walk into that environment, you're more likely to work. And so our environment and the things outside of us really have a big impact on how we, um, what would be the way, how we act or how we, our way of being in that situation. And that's when I started to realize that if we simply plan the actual tasks, so that's what I'm focusing on. When I say planning, I'm talking about the tasks. Whereas if I actually design the bigger context that we're actually going to operate in, that can actually have an enormous effect. So for example, um, probably the classic one for myself and many others is have a look at your office right now. So if you're in your business and it might be a retail space or you might be at your home office or working in someone else's office or a... Um, uh, co-working space have a look and see what are the criteria for is it clean is it messy is it cluttered is it noisy is it quiet and these are the things that are actually going to determine how effective we are at getting things done so for example apparently creative people are actually more prone to like clutter whereas less creative people will get rid of the clutter so it's not one Fits all. It's actually trying to find the same with the strength profile. It's trying to find your way to get things done. So if you're task focused, just plan and get on with it. If you're not task focused and you're not quite getting it done, start to look around your environment and your habits and your motivation to give yourself a bit more fuel to get things done.
0: All right. But of course, then it gets complicated when you have a project that includes other people that have different uh, approaches, <laughs> different learning models, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely and and that's the, the classic one of whenever you work with other people, everyone else has always got a different way of doing it, different way of working and you've just got to find ways together or separately. So, for example, um, one of the things that stood out in the research that some people are great starting projects, so I'm great starting projects and I'll start lots of projects, so I just wouldn't finish many of them. Whereas other people would find it really hard to start projects And once they got started, they were great at finishing. And that's part of finding out around your team or the people you're around, what's going to work for them and what's going to work for other people. So for example, um, noise and music can really annoy me. So therefore, I don't want to be sitting next to someone who's got music playing because that would just distract me, whereas they might need the music to actually you know, shut out the rest of the world and get them to focus. And it's trying to find out what are the different ways that you personally get things done. And then as you pointed to, how do we do this as a group? So all of us actually benefit and not be competing against each other. All
0: right. So in the book, you lay out what you call the seven rules of done. And I wanted to just spot on a couple of them or a few of them, depending on the time here can't go through all of them, but, but the first one is still related to what we're talking about here, which is you say, stop planning. And I think I'm, I'm starting, obviously after reading it, I understand some of it but then chatting about it. But it, it's still something that I struggle with, for example, on how much planning do I do versus getting started. And as you say, stop planning, start designing. I was hoping maybe you could give me a good example or a simple example of how you apply this. So we do less planning and start more designing. Is there an example you could walk us through that comes to mind?
1: Well there's a couple of bits to this that we've talked about the bigger piece around just decluttering your office might be the key. And it and it's not anything to do it's not necessarily going to be a task you write down in a plan but
0: it's actually these are more things about creating an environment that's conducive to me getting my project done not so much how I how I designed the project in a traditional sense is that where I'm kind of losing it a little bit
1: it's kind of got both. So okay. there's two parts. So the stop planning firstly says so that the architectural approach was that you actually designed every single thing. Right. And and that made sense because you then had to hand the plan over and someone else is going to execute the plan being the builder. Um, so there's two parts to this. One is that we need to stop planning from the point of the view that some of us under plan as in, oh yeah, I'll just wing it and see what happens. That's not quite going to work either. Some of us overplan, And for us over-planners, for example, me, I used to get to the point where I'd plan my project so thoroughly, I reckon I knew exactly what was going to happen and what wasn't. And it would suck the juice out of it. So part of it is not to overplan, And the key to that is to actually have enough to know, hey, here's the destination I want to get to. And here's what I need to do in the first week or maybe two weeks. But you actually don't have to plan out much more than that. So the golden rule is, do I know where the finish line is and can I get started? And then you can work out a lot of it along the way. So if you actually just plan your first week, perhaps, um, then you can actually just get down the road a little bit and find out what you're actually going to need. Because the yeah. problem with over planning things is we we put all these things in and think the world is a particular way. But really, a plan is really just a guess of how it's all going to play out. And even though I'd written a few books before in writing this book, I thought I was going to do it a particular way and it just didn't turn out that way. So even when you've got experience about something doesn't mean that's exactly how this project should go. And it's that sort of tight, loose balance. You want a tight enough goal to know that where you're heading, but you want to be loose enough along the way to be able to go down different paths to see what the best way is. The other yeah. part of it is the the designing compartment is actually looking at the much bigger picture of how you get things done. So it's not just the environment. It's also about what are the habits I would need to get things done. So, for example, um, what I've been training myself to do at the moment is I literally get up in the morning, I do a quick meditation, I grab some coffee, and then I go into my office and I do two hours of work before I look at emails, before I answer phones, before I do anything else. So that's sort of one way to design my day to get things done. So it's not just in the plan of what the tasks are, it's how am I designing my day, my life, my environment, my habits, my attitude, all those bits. So it's a much more three-dimensional, holistic approach rather than I've been referring to the plan as like a 2D skeleton of here's the tasks that we have to do versus here's the whole picture. So
0: number 5 in that process is related to this which is ship smaller sooner and this is part again this this concept of of start designing uh, iterate uh, get get something started so because that, then that's going to really dictate what needs to be done next. The thing I always struggle with, with that concept, I get it when we're talking about something that's an IP or uh, an information product or a software product or something that's virtual. But when it's a brick and mortar business, it's harder for me to apply to it, but, but I'm starting to get it. But can you help me with understanding how I apply these types of approach, especially the ship sooner, smaller sooner, when I'm building, let's say, a restaurant location? How does it apply there? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it it's it comes from the Scrum Lean Lean startup sort of idea that if you're trying to innovate with something, you the key is actually to create small units of things so you can get feedback on them. So if you're creating a new product, the last thing we want, or perhaps an author is probably the classic example. So. The the old stereotype is Ernest Hemingway going off to his log cabin for six months to bunker down, not talk to anybody, write a book, and then he walks out the other end and he sort of goes, "Ta-da! I've mm. finished my book." And he could get away with it because he was Ernest Hemingway, but most of us can't. And I've done that with some of my books where I've written the book and then shown people, and they're like, "Oh yeah, right, whatever." <laughs> and then, and it's it's pretty deflating because you put a lot of work into stuff, right? And it's a bit like the. Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams movie, Build It And They Will Come, might be really good if you want to build the thing that you want to build, but it's not very good for you if you want to build something that other people want to buy. And that's why the the view is to actually create a smaller version. So it might be a book's a good example. Instead of writing the whole book, just write a a two-page description of the book and find out whether people are interested in what they'd want you to write about afterwards. So it's getting feedback on things. So for the bricks and mortar business, it's sort of a similar approach. If they think of it as, how can I get feedback on this before I build the whole thing? So for example, let's say, what sort of bricks and mortar business? Let's say, is there still any bookstores in the US? There's not there, many are, there around are some, anymore.
0: There aren't many left, but there are some.
1: Yeah, so that's, at least we'll pick that. So if you were doing a promotion, instead of spending $10,000 to promote something, you might actually test the promotion on... 10 people that come into the store just randomly and ask them a quiz. Can I get your feedback on this for a moment? And so this is a a good example of any business can apply that one where it's like, let's just, instead of doing the full launch, let's do a test with a bunch of other people just on a small basis so that I can find out whether I'm on the right track. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you might just ask 10 people, then you might do a formal survey or you might do a mini launch and then you do a bigger launch. And it's not necessarily um, you still might want to build your big launch, but hopefully what we're trying to say is you're going to get feedback from people on the way so you'll know how to do that final thing better than if you'd just done it from what you thought was a good idea in the beginning. And that's that's the underlying principle of how can I test this? How can I get feedback on it? How can I test this? How can I get feedback on it? And that way the idea is that hopefully we're two things happen. A, we're getting feedback from our customers, but we're also engaging the customer into our business. And that's a really, really crucial Mm. philosophical change of point of view from what we're used to doing and what we're always told to do, where it's just like, you know, it's the old Henry Ford. You can have any color you want as long as it's black and we're telling people what they want. Whereas if we actually went to the people, they might have all said, hey, Henry, we actually all want white. Yeah. You know? It might have been that simple that everybody just wanted white. They just didn't like black. I know there was other reasons for that story with Henry Ford, but it's really a case of if we can go to our customers and listen to them and also create stuff from their point of view, they're way more likely to buy from us. And that's a really simple idea that we can all apply in different ways.
0: Yeah, great insights there, Jeff. And I think those are great examples and takeaways. Going back to you know the restaurant uh, concept, there is many ways where you can start to do that as well. Even in today's age, you might have a pop up restaurant. You might start with a food truck. You might lease a kitchen space. You might. So the thing is about doing it at a smaller scale first to let that customer actually directly tell you what they like and don't like, as opposed to trying to do all of the analysis up front and trying to predict what the customer might like or not like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great example with the pop-ups and that. And the other example around the restaurants is even McDonald's do this where they go, hey, we've got this idea for a new burger. Let's right. test it. And mm-hmm. they test it in a handful of stores, and they also test it for a limited time. That's right. So yeah. you don't actually have to come out with the fait accompli that the whole thing's done and dusted. We just need to execute. It's go and find a small way to do this. And it might be you make it for your mom first. You, know, you make it for your family first. Then you make it for your friends first. And then keep finding out what are they like, what are they don't like. And then it's just that balance between what's going to satisfy me here and what's going to satisfy the customer here and trying to find that place where they overlap.
0: Yeah. And then, again, how this relates to getting projects done is if we try to overanalyze and overplan at the beginning, it, it, it lends itself more now to lose its motivation for all kinds of different reasons. And the reality is that in all likelihood, a lot of those decisions you make have to be made again or are wrong or assumptions that we've made have to be tested and validated. And so all that effort and time that we've spent in over planning are often for not in fact, quite quite uh, even more so they, they drain us from likely getting this project completed, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's also a sneaky little thing that happens out of here that's really exciting because in the old days, this is what used to do me in. It's like if I actually had the plan written and then I went into execute mode. So let's say I was writing a book and I detailed all the structure of what the book was. Then I'm into execute mode and it's actually taken the fun out of it for me. Mm. Whereas if you actually go ship smaller sooner, it's like, okay, how can I break this down into smaller milestones or smaller targets for myself? And particularly if I'm putting it out there each time, it's like I get into the habit of completing stuff and sending it out, which is a key to building momentum. So this whole sense of progress, the progress principle is one of the crucial things that we need to design our projects in a way that we feel like we're making progress towards our goal. And psychologically, that is super, super important. Mm -hmm. And this is the smaller units we can put out, go, I actually put that out and somebody liked it, somebody didn't like it. I'm going to have another go at this week. Someone liked it. Oh, another person liked it. Oh, great. And we're starting to get feedback on what liked, but we're also starting to get engagement. We're starting to produce results. So for example, if you're writing a book, it's like, by all means, write a a one-page summary of it, then send out one chapter and then two chapters. And all of a sudden, you're starting to get momentum around, oh, wow, I'm actually getting this done. And that's a really powerful psychological piece to a project as well.
0: Yeah. Great stuff. All right. Here's something that that I'm always curious about. You, you as you have um, identified in a book, consider yourself a strategic uh, thinking is kind of your strength. You've done assessments on it. And, and of course, you, we've talked about it in this conversation, that, that means you, you like to have the ideas, but not necessarily following through, hence your focus on completing projects. My challenge sometimes with people who have that as their strength is that I can see it sometimes being used as an excuse for why they never execute. And they're just the big idea person, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and for me, have for following who, me? <laughs> <laughs> I have this challenge with my partner as well. And you'll probably be listening, my partner, David, where, so we both like to come up with, that, with ideas, but then we struggle with, okay, who's going to actually execute on these? My question and my point is, and I'd like to get your input and thoughts on is, can we sometimes use that strength? I'm a strategic thinker. I, I think of, of ideas as an excuse to not actually have to go and execute on anything.
1: Absolutely. I think pretty much up until I had my, I guess I'd call it a bit of a breakdown around the partnership I had a few years that had forced me to rethink everything. I realized, I think that's what I'd done for 20 odd years, that I'd actually had the big idea and thought that was enough. But the reality is that if you think about, I love to think about what I realized for myself was if you think about your ideas as fresh air, and it might be a nice idea to share with someone, but as soon as you, they walk away and you walk away, nothing happened mm-hmm. and part of what shifted it for me was what's the legacy I'm leaving behind and not like I don't mean a tombstone or a memorial or that sort of legacy but it's what's the so even from this conversation what's the legacy or the impact that I'm actually leaving behind and if we only talked about this and for example if we only talked about this and didn't have the recording on it we'd have nothing to show for it but because You've put in a system around how to capture the ideas. In this case, we're capturing the ideas in a conversation and it's been recorded. We can actually point to it still and actually share it with other people. And so that's an absolute huge classic one that I've lived for too many years around being comfortable with just having the idea. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the comfort of that is, I think it's safer and quicker and easier just to have the idea. Because then I can't be proven wrong. So if I just have the idea and I go, oh, that'll work, and I'll do my plan, then because I, I, I tell an example, when I was in the States, I used to play tennis against a, a guy, Terry, and he was a really good athlete. And I was, I was a good athlete but hadn't played a lot of tennis. And we played probably 20 times. And over that 20 times, I never actually beat him. Mm. And in one of the games, I got – I think it was we played one set and I got to 5-3 or whatever the score was and I had a match point and I was like, oh, wow, I can actually beat Terry now. And the story goes that I fluffed it and still lost. <laughs> um, and even though in my head I had it that I could beat him, I still hadn't beaten him. And I think it's that's the key for me that we've got to separate or bring together. Um, sometimes we've got to separate them and just go, hey, The idea that I can now beat Terry is something that I can get for myself, but the reality is I still haven't. And that's where we still need to be able to go, does this idea actually work? Strategic thinking is coming up with an idea of how it might work, but the execution of it is proving that the idea worked or didn't work. And that's part of that ship smaller sooner thing that it's bringing our big ideas down to something small So I can actually find out for real whether that actually is true or not. Because as I said earlier, our plans even are just a concept. They're just an idea of what might work or what we hope might work. And this is the key. I think we've just got to bring it back to if we're engaging with people or we're producing physical results each time. So we're actually introducing a new item to the menu. We, We can see it. We can get feedback on it. This takes us out of our strategic thinking. We need to be strategic about what we're going to do. Otherwise, we can work on the wrong things. But at the end of the day, we want to see that strategic thinking and connect it to a result. And that's really the, the way I've been able to realize that that's not enough anymore. Yeah.
0: Yeah, a lot of great stuff there, Jeff. I, and I, if I'm processing it correctly, I hear that you, you have to hold yourself accountable to that, to the, like you did, realizing that a lot of ideas started, not too many completed but then you, you need to find a better way to get things done, hence what the book is about. And like you said, starting smaller, iterating those types of things and and finding what works for you within that, that, that framework. So a different way of getting projects done that does get you hopefully farther down the road to execution and completion of an idea. Um, and then, you, yeah. then you've been touching on it, but I want to... I want to start to wrap it up as far as the seven rules with the last one, number seven, which is you have to change, which is a lot of what you're talking about. So these these habits that we bring to these things that we need to change, and that's a key component, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think if we, it's, I, I, I think they quote this back to Einstein, but it's basically if we do the same thing over and over and expect a different result, well, that's, that's the definition of insanity, mm-hmm. and The reality is if you're actually gonna produce a result that you haven't done before, you're gonna have to change the way you do something along the lines. And I think habits have become a really popular thing because of where the neuroscience is now pointing to that up to 40% of our decision-making is supposedly now a habit. You know, we think we're walking into the store to buy, let's say we're going into a restaurant that we're thinking we're looking at the menu, choosing what we're going to have, but really we're going to go back to the same old thing we had last time. And when we realize that a lot of our things are consistent like that, if you think about that, 40% is a lot. So it gives us room to actually grow ourselves and also take on new actions that hopefully lead to new results. And that's pretty much where I realized that one around strategic thinking for me was that was a habit that I'd built up, that I got satisfied just by thinking about things and I was stroking my ego, but I wasn't filling up my bank account. Mm -hmm. Whereas what I needed to do was translate those ideas into some tangible result for other people. And then I could actually prove A, that the idea worked, but I could also have something that helped other people and, and boosted my bank account. So it's finding out what are the habits that, work for us? What are the habits that don't work for us so well? And that, if you can actually change that, that's when your performance around your projects is going to change as well. Yeah.
0: And in your book, you mentioned another book, which I happen to be in the middle of reading, which is The Power of Habit uh, by Charles, I think it's Duhigg. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but fascinating book that you reference as well. And you've done a lot of study on this topic so, you know, for me, the, the, one of the reasons I liked your book so well and in the rapper I love, because again, that's how I think as well. When I read a business book, I also highlight it and go back to it because my retention is poor. So I'll I'll read a book and a couple of years later, uh, th- some of the key things have stuck, but I go back and reread books, but I've highlighted and created my own sh- notes, if you will. But this is even better yeah. because you're not just doing a summary of the book, you are interpreting it in a different form uh, for those different learning styles. And that's, I think, one of the key powerful parts of it. Um, All right. So lots that we've talked about there. So the point I was wanting to make there about your book is it's not just a, a, it's not about another project management type theory book. It's about these very practical and important things that we need to look at and change in ourselves if we're going to get better at completing projects, on getting things done, and therefore, for those of us who are small business owners like myself, on starting and growing our small business. Um, I want to touch on one last point as we move on, because we're running out of time. And and you touched on it as well, that one of the challenges I have as a small business owner is discerning between the, as you call it, the continuous work and the projects work. And making sure that I focus on projects, give me some, some thoughts or tips there on how I do that more effectively so that I can focus on the projects that move my small business forward as opposed to the stuff that I could probably delegate or outsource.
1: Yeah, great question. So firstly, just to explain that the idea of continuous work is there's some tasks in our business that are always going to be there. And probably the classic one is email. Um, no matter what I do, even if I get my inbox down to zero today, there's still going to be more that come in tomorrow and I'm going to have to do the same thing again tomorrow. Um, the same could apply to your finance, getting customers, serving your customers, doing some admin, all that sort of stuff. So there's certain things in your project that you, so in your business that you're just going to have to compete, Complete every day. That's continuous work. The problem with the continuous work is that there's no, that actually doesn't grow or change things. So therefore we need projects to actually add in innovation or change or growth into our business. And a project is very different, very simply because it's got a specific start point and a specific mm-hmm. end point. And usually a project doesn't have any um, workflow around it. So when we just create a project from scratch, we need to create a workflow around it. And that's the opportunity to do things in a different way. So, Part of this is if you really want to get your – if think about your long-term goal, you're not going to achieve that through only doing continuous work. You're going to need a project to actually almost like jam a wedge in the door to pry it open a little bit. That's what a project can do such that over time you can get momentum from your project. So the key challenge is obviously for you as the business leader, you want to minimize the amount of time on your continuous work if it's of a point that's not of a high strategic value. So for example, you probably can't outsource your emailing to a certain extent because a lot of that you're going to have to decide or respond to. Um, But there might be some other tasks in there. So certainly for me, um, I don't want to be dealing with my finance from the point of view that I don't need to do the bookkeeping. So I can certainly outsource those sort of things. The other part of it is that with your projects, you can also apply a project to continuous work. So for example if you've got finance and you're currently doing it you might create a project to actually outsource the continuous work. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that's not you can see the separation there. Yeah. So I think the key is to actually ask what's the important thing for you to be working on regardless of whether it's continuous or project. So if you're the the GM of your company and or let's say you're the business development person then You might have to be making calls for customers every day. That's continuous work, but you can't really outsource that because that's crucial to your role. So I'd be looking at it from a different point. I'd be actually looking at what's crucial to your role that you have to do. And if it's something that's not crucial, by all means, then outsource it or delegate it. But if it's crucial for for you, um, you may probably have to keep going on it. The key point I'd make is that, if you really want to innovate something or you want to grow something, then create a short-term project to create a particular focus of attention that's got a specific start and end point. And that's when you can actually create a different result for yeah. yourself. Whereas the continuous work is really about repeating certain things. Right. Great, great. Does that answer that answer? Your Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I think that gives us a lot more clarity, help us to kind of validate that. And then, of course, those things that we do identify as projects, for example, you touched on sales, so maybe the project that I need to lead might be entering a new uh, sub uh, sub industry or a new industry or a new group of customers that we've never had penetration with before, and so that might be a project. But then back to what we've learned about, and we you learn about in the book, take a different approach to how we plan for and execute on that project so that I have a higher probability of success. And uh, that's that's the, that's yes. how I would summarize what we've chatted about here.
1: And then also once, if you're going to a new market segment, you might have a project on that for say three or six mm-hmm. months, but at the end of that, you actually turn that into continuous work again.
0: That's right. That's right. So that's sort of the flow of it. Okay. So now I can pass it on to my sales, my sales team or salesperson or whatever, because now we, we know how to do that and we can do it on a repeated yes, basis
1: now. Perfect.
0: Jeff, what do you love
1: most about what you do today? Um... I think it's the the I'm 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 a compulsive learner, and as long as I'm learning and creating, um, and obviously not in isolation, I think I've got past that one. That I need to do it, learn and create and offer it to other people, and that's the piece that I'm getting a lot of joy out of. If I can be helping people, I learned something. I'll pass it on to somebody else. That's where my joy is coming from right now. Yeah, I love that.
0: All right. So summarize for us. We've touched on it, but summarize for us the project passion. What do you offer your clients there? What's that all about?
1: So Project Passion, I'm about to reorganize it. So I've got an entry course, which runs for nine weeks. Um, We're about to do a seven session, one just before Christmas to finish things off. But it's basically, how do you get things done? And well, the full title is get more done in less time with less effort, with fewer resources. And that sounds like the impossible dream for productivity, but it's A lot of what people need is just if we focus on different things and we actually look at different ways of getting things done, then a lot of that's possible. Mm -hmm. And then so it's a short course. And then I'm looking for next year to actually take it into a 12-month program so people can actually create their next big thing. So rather than just a a three-month focus, it's like, okay, what could you create in a full year? And I think that's got me excited at the moment because obviously the scale of our projects can go up on that. Mm -hmm. Wonderful.
0: All right, books. Let's uh, talk briefly about books. We've talked about quite a few. Obviously, yours again, which we've chatted about. The title is Done, Why You Fail to Finish Your Projects and What to Do About It. We I mentioned uh, The Power of Habit. You mentioned The Start With Why, which is one of the most popular recommended books. And then an interesting thing you do with book wrappers, you you name a book of the year. Last year for 2016, it was Deep Work by Cal Newport. And so is there a book that you've read recently or that you're currently reading that you would recommend?
1: Probably the one that stands out is the one that I've recently wrapped under Book Wrapper and it was a book called Getting Grit and it was by Caroline Adams Miller. And I'd been reading a whole bunch of books around resilience and um, I guess grit and sticking at tasks because that was what I realized where I wasn't good at. And Angela Duckworth did a she was the original expert around some of this work and came up with a grit score. So if you go over to Angela and I think if you type in grit score, you can actually do a, I think it's about a 10 question questionnaire. It'll take you two or three minutes and you'll get a grit score. And when I did my grit score, I it's up to a po- out of a possible five. I think it was about a 2.6, which is actually really quite quite low. And when I read Carolyn Adams Miller's book on getting grit I found that it was a really really good example of how I could actually improve my grit Interesting. so I've been I've, I've wrapped that I'm happy to share the wrap with your audience so maybe we can set that up I'll give you a copy and you anybody who emails you about today's episode you can send that to them That'd be fantastic. Um, because I think it's really what I'd done with Project Passion was I'd came I came up with a whole bunch of strategies that worked Uh, But they're also about overcoming my weakness around grit, like designing your environment's important. However, if I'm better at my grit and sticking at my ability ability to stick at tasks, I'm actually going to get more done. Mm -hmm. So um, also the other thing that she's done really well in the book, she's got some great questions and exercises. It's like some essay-type questions for you to sit down and actually write down, how am I about this? How do I approach that? And I think the learning from that is really powerful. And so books, what I look for in a book is, has it got a big idea that's new to me? But also, how can I use this? And I think she's done it beautifully in that book. So Getting Grit by Carolyn Adams Miller. I think that's right. Yep. Wonderful. That's my most recent one.
0: Yep. Great. Thanks for that recommendation. And thanks for the offer on the book wrapper. So we will, what I'll do is I'll put on the show notes page for this episode at the How a Business, How to Get That. And folks, it's well worth taking the time to go to the show notes page and get this for free. These are very well done. These book summaries, as I'll call them, book wrappers. It's a great way to learn a topic. Um, You should still read the book, but it's just a great way to summarize a book. Uh, So we'll make sure to have that on the show notes page. And so if you just go to thehowofbusiness.com, you'll find how to get your free download. Thanks for offering that.
1: Also, um, I actually give people my book as well. So I'd much rather, so it's up on Kindle for about two bucks. I'd actually rather give it to people if that's going to make a difference for them to look at. So how about we put my book up there, the ebook version of done up there as well. So if people are listening to this and they want to go into more detail, they can go and get that as well.
0: Fantastic. I appreciate that. All right. So you got to take them, like you got to take them up on that. If you're listening this far on this episode, then this was of interest to you. I assure you these downloads will be worth your time. So thanks for that, Jeff. All right, we'll wrap it up here. Last two questions. And and you, you mentioned uh, a little bit ago about what your legacy is and thinking about the legacy you leave behind and the legacy you leave behind with this conversation. So what is that legacy that you'd like to leave behind with this conversation that we've had for the past hour or so?
1: I guess my intention is really just, I hope I've added some value or given some peop- people some, um, I call it an opening for action. It's like, is there one idea that you can take away that you can go and do? And hopefully, we've pointed to a few things that are practical things that you can at least go away and test. And that's what I'd love that from this conversation. If people have spent, you know, 40, 45 minutes listening to us, that hopefully they've gone away and done something that then makes a difference in their life or makes a difference for someone else. So it's part of being that ripple effect that maybe today I can just be that little stone that creates a ripple for people to go and make a difference in their own life. Otherwise, you know, if we're only listening to things, it's useful and it's probably not going to have much impact. So go and take some action from today.
0: I think that's perfect. I think that's a great, great piece of advice. I, I find myself doing that sometimes while listen to a lot of podcasts or I'll read books, but then taking an action to start to actually make that part of how I do what I do is really the win. And and I would recommend that the action be, and not because you're going to my website, Go to go to Jeff's website, But read these materials, learn how to do projects differently. And I think that's a huge start in getting us to be more effective as business owners and help us grow our business. So thanks for that guidance. Where would you like us to go online to find out more about you and and about the business?
1: Um, Probably the two, well, there's a couple of websites. Probably the main one is jeffmcdonald.com. So Jeff, as in the English spelling, G-E-O-F-F and McDonald as in Ronald McDonald, jeffmcdonald.com and also the projectpassion.com.au site. So that's an Australian site or the Australian domain name, projectpassion.com.au.
0: Wonderful. And if you didn't get that, we'll have that on the show notes page as well. Perfect. Jeff, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for uh, going longer than than we anticipated here, but uh, it was all great stuff. I appreciate you indulging me with all the questions and for taking the time and sharing your knowledge. Thank you.
1: Uh, thanks, my pleasure, Henry. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: This is Henry Lopez, and my guest was Jeff McDonald. Thanks for listening to this episode of the How a Business. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find our show on iTunes, Stitcher, and at our website